Hello, and welcome to the Nauticast Podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Pork Quentin. And I'm your other host, Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And welcome to the 210th episode of the Nauticast, titled, Do the Right Thing, an analysis of A Storm of Swords, Davos 6, in which Davos defies his king to save the children, and then... This can't be right. Lives to tell the tale? Just just imagine how embarrassed Ned Stark must be right now. <laughs> Poor Ned. He lost his head, yet is still taking owls while he's dead. So our spoiler warning, as always, prepare to be spoiled for all five novels, all three Duncan Egg novellas, any histories, any interviews, Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon, the TV shows. Prepare to be spoiled for anything and everything. Our question this episode comes from one of our patrons, Maple, who asks, Davos 6 is the last time in A Storm of Swords we see one of Robert's actual kids, and we don't see any of them until the very end of A Feast for Crows when we are reintroduced to Gendry and Maya. Jumping off of this, I have two questions for you. First, do you have any predictions for Robert's kids that we know of, Maya, Bella, and Gendry in the Winds of Winter? Does Maya become best friends with Sansa, get a happily ever after ending with Michael Redfort? Do Gendry and Bella ever hook up? Secondly, Maggie the Frog prophesied that Robert would have 16 children. So far, we know of the four previously mentioned, Barra, who was killed by Order of Cersei in A Clash of Kings, and twins from a Casterly Rock serving woman, also killed by Order of Cersei. Cersei, really, what a, what a run she's been on. That leaves nine kids out there in Westeros that we know nothing about. Do you think we'll be introduced to any of them as minor tertiary characters in, in later books? So what do you think of that? Do you have any idea what may be coming for all the rest of Robert's bastards, even the ones we haven't met? Okay, so <clears throat> I'll try to go at this uh, strategically here. First, I will say Gendry will not ring Bella's bell. Um, I think if we Agreed. see Gendra, uh, Gendry interact with anyone, it will be Arya in that manner. Um, and I think we do Agreed. know that Gendry is coming back. I believe there's a so spake Martin or something that George has said that yep. Gendry will be back. And he is kind of already back, so I guess. Um, but he will factor into the winds and uh, dream. So there is that. Uh, Maya, I don't really have any strong predictions about, but she is within the little finger sphere of influence. And you have to imagine, like, it's kind of an open secret that Maya Stone is one of Robert's bastards. Um, and, you know, with things we expect to happen to House Baratheon in the Winds of Winter, if Littlefinger, you know, outlives Stannis um, and Shireen, that really, you know, be like, hey, I got a Robert bastard here. Maybe, you know, that might, you know, help one of his claims for the Stormlands. So that's kind of the best guess I have with her. Um, as for the other, like, kind of missing ones, I think there might be, like, random, shaggy, black-haired kid uh, that you meet, like, as a story, but I don't think it's going to be plot important. It might just be like, oh, if you see it, that's cool for you. Um, maybe they'll help someone, like, very minorly or in a minor way. Um, I don't see them having, like, a big impact. I don't see, like, a young Griff Baratheon showing up in the last two books, but um, I, I do think it is possible we see one. I don't think we're going to get a full accounting of where all nine of them are unless something really strange happens that I'm not expecting in the story. That's a whole eighth book just about them. <laughs> no, totally agreed. I think I always thought the the sixteen children was always just to, was always just kind of uh, to emphasize just how mm-hmm. bad that marriage was going to be between Robert and Cersei. Like that's how how big the gap is between between your children, the three you have with Jamie, then the sixteen he had with everybody else in a very much a egg on the fourth kind of way. Uh, but I, I also totally agree. I think George does like throwing just uh, background gags in there. That's what Bella is too. You know, that's mm-hmm. it never comes out and says that uh, that Gendry and Bella are siblings. You just have to kind of infer it. And yeah, Maya Stone, the one, the one detail that I think stands out to me with her is that 
apparently Lothar Brune has a crush on her. Mm. So maybe that'll develop into a thing. I always felt like Lothar Brune, he seemed to have some some you know, semi-nice moments with Sansa, moments where she uh, he reminded her of Sandor. So maybe he outlives Littlefinger. Maybe he joins Sansa's retinue at some point and, and they're able to hook up. Only, only the best for Robert's bastards. They've had, a, <laughs> they've had a rough gig, even the ones who have survived, let alone the ones, all the ones. You know what I think happened to those other nine? Cersei killed them. That's yes. the best bet. Given, um, let's, let's have some pattern recognition here. Cersei probably killed them. I know the show did it more explicitly, but there is the whole thing of Robert's bastards being killed off, like at the beginning of a Clash of Kings, right? right? They uh-huh. don't really give us a count, and I think we only really assume it's Bara, um, or like that's the only concrete person we know. But theoretically, some of the other ones could have been, you know, purged in that as well. It's it's always you know with Cersei, you're always your best <laughs> bet is more, yes, <laughs> more bodies than you than you expect. So thank you so much to Maple for the question. If you want to ask us questions, we are forced to answer here on the Nauticast podcast. You can head on over to patreon.com slash Nauticast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where our patrons get benefits, including early access to our regular episodes, exclusive episodes every month, and the chance to ask us questions. But we are here today to talk about one of my favorite chapters in the story, A Storm of Swords, Davos 6. So let's jump into the synopsis. Their voices rose like cinders, swirling up into purple evening sky. Lead us from the darkness, O my lord. Fill our hearts with fire, so we may walk your shining path. Ah, but what Melisandre won't tell you is that the shining path is just the yellow brick road from the Wizard of Oz, if you set it on fire. Turns it into a very short movie. Davos hasn't joined the nightly prayer session. What a surprise. Instead, he's watching from above, as Melisandre thanks almighty R'hllor for the sun, the stars, our eyes, our hearts, our dicks, our balls, etc. You know how this goes. Selyse has to be head cheerleader for the crowd because Stannis isn't actually participating. Again, what a surprise. Is there such thing as getting negative class participation? Because I think that was Stannis all through school. Instead of saying polo whenever Melisandre says Marco, Stannis is staring deep into the flames. Davos can only wonder what his king sees in there. War? Treason? Well, let's hope war, apparently, or Davos is in big trouble. Melisandre continues thanking R'hllor for torches, oxygen, the eagles kicking ass, basically everything good on this earth. I guess you didn't pray hard enough for the Phillies. Thanks a lot, God. Davos continues to watch and drop little hints to the reader about what he's up to, because Davos is a big old tease. Just ask his wife. Finally, Sir Andrew Estermont interrupts the foreshadowing and groundwork by calling out to Lord Davos. Eventually, Davos remembers that Lord Davos is him, still getting used to that, and they set out on their so far mysterious mission. The rest of the Dragonstone Ocean's Eleven team soon joins them. The Bastard of Nightsong had a pox-ravaged face and an air of tattered chivalry. Sir Gerald Gower was broad, bluff, and blonde. Sir Andrew Estermont stood a head taller with a spade-shaped beard and shaggy brown eyebrows. They were all good men in their own ways, Davos thought, and they will all be dead men soon, if this night's work goes badly. Fire is a living thing, the Red Woman told him, when he asked her to teach him how to see the future in the flames. It is always moving, always changing like a book whose letters dance and shift even as you try to read them. It takes years of training to see the shapes beyond the flames, and more years still to learn to tell the shapes of what will be from what may be or what was. Even then it comes hard, hard. You do not understand that, you men of the Sunset Lands. Davos asked her then how it was that Sir Axel had learned the trick of it so quickly, but to that she only smiled enigmatically and said, Any cat may stare into a fire and see red mice at play. Confirmed, Melisandre is a cat person. Or maybe she's making fun of cats and is actually a dog person. Maybe that's why Ghost likes her so much. That and, you know, all the magic. Davos reflects on how he warned his fellow kingsmen that Melisandre might learn about their conspiracy from her visions. 
Louis the fishwife, delightful name there, says they should kill Melisandre, but Davos says that won't work. After all, Crescent tried to kill her, and she knew right away. I love that Davos doesn't mention his own failed assassination attempt here. Nope, just Crescent tried it, and then we all learned our lesson. To be fair, Davos did learn something from his failure. Melisandre always checks her flamo vision for her own safety first. So as long as the King's men don't pose a direct threat to her, she might not see what they're up to. There was no honor in hiding and sneaking, objected Sir Tristan of Tally Hill, who had been a sunglass man before Lord Gunser went to Melisandre's fires. Is it so honorable to burn? Davos asked him. You saw Lord Sunglass die. Is that what you want? I don't need men of honor now. I need smugglers. Are you with me or no? Hell yes, we are. My sword, my bow, my axe, my missing fingers. Davos and Sir Andrew enter Maester Pylos' chambers to find him teaching math to Edric Storm. The maester breaks off the lesson there. Thanks a lot, Davos. You have ruined this poor kid's STEM education. How's he ever going to find a job now? Pylos tells Edric to go with Davos and follow his orders. Davos thinks that he misjudged Pylos. The young maester is putting his life on the line here. Ah, but Pylos has to make it through. Who else is going to send out Danny's letter declaring young Griff a fraud? I guess you could just copy Stannis' letter declaring Joffrey a fraud. It is the exact same plot point after all. Unfortunately for Davos, it turns out that Edric Storm is not stupid, and he quickly realizes that something strange is going on. When Davos tells Edric that he'll be taking a ride on one of Salador's ships, Edric insists on saying goodbye to Shireen first, and then demands to see his uncle, the king. He does not want to see you. Davos had to say something to get the boy moving. I am his hand, I speak with his voice. Must I go to the king and tell him you would not do as you were told? Do you know how angry that will make him? Have you ever seen your uncle angry? He pulled off his glove and showed the boy the four fingers that Stannis had shortened. I have. It was all lies. There had been no anger in Stannis Baratheon when he had cut off the ends of his Onion Knight's fingers. Only an iron sense of justice. But Edric Storm had not been born then, and could not know that. Don't worry, kid. Your uncle won't burn you alive because he's angry, only because of justice. Isn't that reassuring? That'll totally make it hurt less. Edric is sufficiently spooked by Davos's missing fingers to keep moving. The king's men lead the boy to a gate, where more conspirators have tied up the guards. Davos prepares to put Edric Storm on a boat that will ride him out to Salador's ship. The boy hesitated. Think of this as an adventure, my lord. Davos tried to sound hale and cheerful. It's the start of your life's great adventure. May the warrior defend you. And may the father judge you justly, Lord Davos. Nice little passive-aggressive jab from Edric there. Truly, truly he is Stannis' nephew. Davos wishes that he still had his finger bones, and that he'd gotten a haircut, and that he had wings for all the good wishes will do him. He walks through the castle, feeling the stone dragons stir in their sleep, and praying they'll never wake up. He enters the stone drum tower and begins to climb, feeling his fatigue with every step. The mother never made me for tasks like this. He had risen too high and too fast, and up here on the mountain the air was too thin for him to breathe. As a boy he dreamed of riches, but that was long ago. Later, grown... All he had wanted was a few acres of good land, a hall to grow old in, a better life for his sons. The blind bastard used to tell him that a clever smuggler did not overreach, nor draw too much attention to himself. A few acres, a timbered roof, a sir before my name. I should have been content. If he survived this night, he would take Devon and sail home to Cape Wrath and his gentle Maria. We will grieve together for our dead sons, raise the living ones to be good men, and speak no more of kings. Well, I have some good slash bad news for you there, Davos. You will survive the night, but you will not be going home. You have so much more speaking of kings to do. Finally, Davos reaches the Chamber of the Painted Table, where he starts a fire and opens the windows. He looks for the ship sailing Edric away, but can't see it. 
Uh, the poor kid is out there rowing and rowing. Uh, wait, sorry, wrong bastard. Davos then looks up at the constellations, trying to draw strength from the familiar stars. But then his gaze falls back to Earth, where the shadows of the stone dragons creep him out. Poor Davos, I don't think I'll ever look at a shadow the same way again. He heard their boots on the stone steps as they ascended. The king's voice went before him. Is not three, he was saying. Three is three, came Melisandre's answer. I swear to you, your grace. I saw him die and heard his mother's wail. In the night fire. Stannis and Melisandre came through the door together. The flames are full of tricks. What is, what will be, what may be. You cannot tell me for a certainty. Your grace. Davos stepped forward. Lady Melisandre saw it true. Your nephew Joffrey is dead. If the king was surprised to find him at the painted table, he gave no sign. Lord Davos, he said. He was not my nephew. Though for years I believed he was. Yes, that's the important thing right now. The Baratheon brand name. Nothing else at stake. Literally or otherwise. Stannis asks who killed Joffrey, and Davos passes on the 100% verifiable fact that it was Tyrion. Selador wouldn't just spread rumors. He would get on the internet and lie. The king ran his fingers across the table. Joffrey. I remember once, this kitchen cat. The cooks were wont to feed her scraps and fish heads. One told the boy that she had kittens in her belly, thinking he might want one. Joffrey opened up the poor thing with a dagger to see if it was true. When he found the kittens, he brought them to show his father. Robert hit the boy so hard I thought he'd killed him. Uh, if only. But Robert got lazy and a woman had to finish the job for him. Typical. Stannis delusionally declares that the Lannisters will surely acknowledge him as king now. Yeah, forget the big battle and the twin cyst and the fact that they hate you almost as much as you hate them. We're going to let bygones be bygones. Melisandre gently reminds the king that, here in reality, Tywin will just crown Tommen instead. Stannis made a fist. Tommen is gentler than Joffrey, but born of the same incest. Another monster in the making. Another leech upon the land. Westeros needs a man's hand, not a child's. Melisandre moved closer. Save them, sire. Let me wake the stone dragons. Three is three. Give me the boy. Edric Storm, Davos said. Say his name, say his name. Latest hit from uh, Davos's child? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> workshop that one. <laughs> Stannis tells Davos to stop pointing out this is horrible. That's really inconvenient. And then he asks Melisandre one last time if there is any other way forward besides child sacrifice. You are he who must stand against the other. The one whose coming was prophesied 5,000 years ago. The Red Comet was your herald. You are the prince that was promised. And if you fail, the world fails with you. Melisandre went to him. Her red lips parted, her ruby throbbing. Give me this boy, she whispered, and I will give you your kingdom. There is not enough time in the world to fact check all of that. Just gonna have to move on. Davos tells them they can't burn the boy because he's gone, and is gratified to see that Melisandre did not see this coming. Stannis, bless his tiny, shriveled Grinch heart, tries to overlook Davos' guilt and put all the blame on Salador, but Melisandre knows that this was Davos' plan and tells him to bring Edric back, now if not sooner. Davos says he can't and that he was only doing his duty. Stannis calls it treason and says he thought he had earned Davos' loyalty. Four of my sons died for you in the Blackwater. I might have died myself. You have my loyalty. Always. Davos Seaworth had thought long and hard about the words he said next. He knew his life depended on them. Your grace, you made me swear to give you honest counsel and swift obedience, to defend your realm against your foes, to protect your people. Is not Edric Storm one of your people? One of those I swore to protect? I kept my oath. How could that be treason? Ah, it's Stannis' favorite thing, a technicality. 
Stannis ground his teeth again. I never asked for this crown. Gold is cold and heavy on the head, but so long as I am the king, I have a duty. If I must sacrifice one child to the flames to save a million from the dark. Sacrifice is never easy, Davos. Or it is no true sacrifice. Tell him, my lady. Melisandre said, Azor a high-tempered lightbringer with the heart's blood of his own beloved wife. If a man with a thousand cows gives one to God, that is nothing. But a man who offers the only cow he owns? She talks of cows, Davos told the king. I'm speaking of a boy, your daughter's friend, your brother's son. Hey, I just want to know what the cows ever did to deserve this. Melisandre argues that Davos hasn't actually saved Edric Storm, because if Stannis doesn't go through with his little murderous Azor Ahai cosplay, the world will end and the others will kill Edric, along with literally everyone else. There's much I don't understand, Davos admitted. I have never pretended elsewise. I know the seas and rivers, the shapes of the coasts where the rocks and shoals lie. I know hidden coves where a boat can land unseen. And I know that a king protects his people, or he is no king at all. And the crowd goes wild. Vote Seaworth 2024. Stannis suspects that he's being mocked because, of course he does, it's a day ending and why. Davos asks that the king hear him out. Hasn't he earned that with his onions and his finger bones? Stannis agrees to listen, although he draws Lightbringer first, just in case Davos wasn't nervous enough. Davos fumbled inside his cloak and drew out the crinkled sheet of parchment. It seemed a thin and flimsy thing, yet it was all the shield he had. A king's hand should be able to read and write. Maester Pylos has been teaching me. He smoothed the letter flat upon his knee and began to read by the light of the magic sword. And that is the synopsis for A Storm of Swords Davos 6. What'd you think of this one, sir? On reread, Davos's A Storm of Swords chapters end up being the most exhilarating. Sure, it doesn't have the epic highs and lows of jumping into a bear pit or regicide, but George is really cooking in these chapters, using the same deft misdirects and obfuscations that failed this book's more dramatic moments, but it deploying them writ small to the small-scale adventure happening on the island of Dragonstone. He slow-rolls Davos's plan to get Edric out of the city, and he continues slow-rolling the next military action Team Stannis is going to take. To me, Davos 6 is his no-chance-and-no-choice moment. The odds of ferrying Edric Storm away from the city are incredibly slight. The Red Woman will likely see it in her flames, and then it'll be Davos burning in those fires. But he knows it's the right thing to do, the only thing to do. He does it, and he owns it. It's an existential win, the same kind of win that Davos will turn on Stannis, because saving the realm is more important than winning the throne. Like I've said each and every time we get to a Davos chapter, <laughs> this is my favorite storyline in A Storm of Swords, despite or even because of how isolated it is from the main action. It's a self-contained morality play in which Davos is confronted with dilemmas to which he has no easy answers. He is forced to act, to choose, and those choices define a character who is given much more depth than in the previous book. This storyline began with Davos sitting on his rock, enduring his punishment from the gods, watching salvation sail closer and wondering whether he should even accept it. Why go on after watching his ship and his sons go up in flames, along with his king's chances of winning the war? Davos is alive, which we might not have expected after the Battle of the Blackwater. Okay, great. What is he alive for? The same question applies to the Stannis subplot as a whole, both in-universe and in terms of the writing. Why shouldn't Stannis just surrender to the Lannisters now that the odds are stacked overwhelmingly against him? And along the same lines, why is George still writing about these people now that their back is against the wall and the center of the action is elsewhere? 
Now, this is the chapter where George answers those questions, or at least starts to before finishing up in John's chapters at the wall. And he does it so well that this is maybe my favorite post-Red Wedding chapter in the book. A lot of great John and Tyrion chapters to come. Maybe I'll probably revise that, but coming off it, uh, much as I love the last couple Davos chapters, they're huge and kind of unwieldy with just how much is going on. We talked about in Davos 5 how that easily could have been split up, and with Davos 4. This one, though, this one is basically perfect. Every description, every exchange of dialogue, every twist and turn lands right where it's supposed to. I'll talk more later about the the efficiency and creativity of that structure, but I want to start with what it's all for in the end. George, I think, directly expressing his politics. Cutting through ambiguity, complexity, human imperfections, everything that gets in the way of righteous action elsewhere in the story, and just shows us what he thinks it means to do the right thing. If you want to see what George thinks people with power ought to do with that power, look no further than this chapter. You know, I really also wanted to directly express my politics to start off this section of the podcast (laughs) because I wanted to talk about The Shining Path, which Melisandre references in her opening chant. I wanted to talk about the militant Maoist party of that name in Peru called Sendero Luminoso, but when I tried to gather some facts to present to you all, most of the top Google results were government watch list websites, so I've decided not to go forward with that. But if you are interested in a non-Stalinist, non-Soviet communist model that was put into effect, or at least tried to put into effect, uh, please look into The Shining Path in Peru. Maybe do it in an incognito mode. Good call. And that's, yeah, that's part of what makes uh, this an interesting storyline, I think, because it's a very political story, the Stan Stavos Melisandre stuff. They're constantly talking about political action and what to do. And there's such a wide range of influences. Some of it is is left-wing coded and some of it is really right-wing coded. And some of it is just, you know, obviously of its time and place and doesn't uh, map neatly onto our, our kind of more modern binaries. And all of it, I think, just feeds into the ambiguity of Stannis as both hero and villain, that you're constantly getting these these different kinds of ideas colliding with each other. There's a great example of that when he shows up at the wall and is talking to John about what's what's going to happen next. And he says, I mean to allow the wildlings through the wall, ellipsis, those who will swear me their fealty, pledge to keep the king's peace and the king's laws, and take the Lord of Light as their god. And it's just perfect because he says the great thing and then the terrible thing, all in one sentence. And uh, at this point in the story, we don't actually... We, we don't know much about what the Shining Path is. You know, we don't actually know much about Relorism as a religion. I mean, so much so that we have to make up a name like Relorism for it. I, that's not in the text. I just call it that because you got to call it something. I doubt George had initially thought the Red God stuff through beyond how it serves this storyline. It works as a great device. The, the temptation and corruption of Stannis. You get this great contrast between Melisandre's very good versus evil worldview and Davos's more more nuanced and merciful take. In A Dance with Dragons, we get more into the religion as a religion when Tyrion and other POVs go to Volantis and we see the big the big temple they got going on there. There is still plenty of mystery. It's, you know, w- what we learn is enough to say that Melisandre seems like kind of a lone wolf, like no one else in the church seems to care about Stannis. And as with uh, Jock and Hagar, the first faceless man we met, who knows how much of that was intentional at the start. I don't think George had thought uh, either of those institutions all the way through. Point is, it's, it's unclear... What it really means to walk the shining path, what Melisandre says here. She's the only one setting the narrative. It means whatever she says it means. And I think it sets up a great contrast with Davos, who has his own his own moral path to follow. And he's kind of had to make it up himself. Yeah, nice transition from the Red Scare to the Red Woman there. Uh, we start this chapter with the night fires outside, casting shadows uh, via the gargles and grotesqueries. It's literally monsters come to life. 
swaying like the shadows did in Runley's tenth. Death hangs over everything here, and Davos is really feeling that dread as the Red Woman's powers could really stop his plan dead in its tracks. But amongst the true believers Davos spies is Stannis and Shireen, who he says is among them but not one of them. I don't think Davos is wrong about Stannis per se, but it does feel like a certain amount of cope for Davos to continue feeling upright in his support of the king. (laughs) Totally agreed. Like, on one hand, Stannis is not a true believer in the sense that I don't think he believes in the shining path. You know what I mean? I don't think he associates R'hllor with any larger moral truth. And he also just doesn't like the spectacle of it all because it involves interacting with other people, his least favorite thing. There's a great bit in Sam's last chapter in this book where uh, Melisandre trots out her big monologue about how God handpicked Stannis to save the world. And Sam thinks Stannis looks uh, desperately uncomfortable, <laughs> as George writes. And the king quickly pivots the conversation back to more pragmatic political and military questions where he feels much more at home. Stannis, I think, sees his relationship with R'hllor as transactional. You know, it's like they say in New Girl, you give me cookie, I give you cookie. <laughs> so he's not actually a zealot like Solis. He knows that this is mostly just for show. But on the other hand, if Stannis doesn't believe in the Shining Path or the Red Sword of Justice or any of that malarkey, what is he doing here? (laughs) What does it mean to be with them but not of them, as Davos says? Isn't that kind of worse if he doesn't even have the fig leaf of earnest religious faith and is instead taking part in something he doesn't believe in? And yeah, like you said, all that that great horror imagery we get in this opening, the gargoyles seeming to to move in the shimmering air above the flames and the firelight reflecting on Axel Florent like a tongue— Davos compares the fire to a beast. Like, even though the the worshippers are are giving it credit for fighting off the dark, it's the sun, it's what keeps us alive, it's what keeps us going. It's being described as a monster in its own right, which ties directly into the heart of the series. I think that as as ice and fire clash, they can both easily become uh, monsters in the same way that the different factions of the war can uh, become monstrous. And yeah, agreed. Davos is 100% telling himself this, because in order for Davos to get through this chapter with his soul and sanity intact, he has to believe that his king is still worthy of his loyalty. Even though Davos is defying Stannis in this chapter, he is doing so in service of his king's best interests and better angels. This isn't a revolution, it's an intervention. And you only hold an intervention when you think there's a genuine chance of pulling someone back from the brink. The refrain, grant him strength, grant him courage, grant him wisdom, tickled my brain because Solis and Co. basically named all three parts of the Triforce. More aptly, perhaps, though, it feels of a piece with the Ironborn chant, bless him with salt, bless him with stone, bless him with steel. A mantra of similar cadence, but reflecting opposite elemental powers, fire and water, for lack of a better phrasing, and it's for the two islands on the opposite side of Westeros. And it is in the water, in the tides, that Sir Davos thrives. He once again is becoming a smuggler, much like he did in A Clash of Kings. But instead of smuggling death into Storm's End, he'll be smuggling a boy out of harm's way. I love how George frames this chapter, not quite giving away Davos's purpose. Instead, Davos's interiority focuses on the consequences of his upcoming actions, retributions against him or his son by Melisandre and Stannis. It's a fantastic tension where we fear the worst for Davos, but not knowing what for. And whatever Davos is about, he is fucking about it. He has collected a group of men to his cause, something Sala mentioned the last time out, and they are indeed a very fun group. Minor characters, all of them, though the bastard of Night Song is just one of those great names that sticks with you. And gods be good, they were men Davos trusts. Yeah, this is where we get into the the structure I mentioned earlier. This chapter is a masterclass in withholding information in order to create a greater impact later. Like, just step back and think about 
what's happening here in chronological order. Here's what happens. Salador gets word that Joffrey is dead. He tells Davos. Davos goes, oh shit, that's the third king. <laughs> Melisandre might be able to convince Stannis to burn Edric now. And then Davos decides he has to act quickly within this, this little window of opportunity before anyone else on Dragonstone learns that Joffrey is dead. He gets his boys together and tells them, we're going to go rescue Edric Storm and send him overseas. He also plans, and it's not clear whether he tells the Kingsmen this, he also plans to reveal the letter from the Night's Watch to Stannis and Melisandre, using it to argue they should instead sail north as their next move. That's what happens. But, like you said, that is not how this chapter is written, and so it's not how we actually experience it as readers. Instead, we just watch the prince heist go down in real time, and only gradually learn what Davos is doing, why he's doing it now, and how he plans to get away with it. The hits don't keep coming, the hits don't stop coming until the very end of the chapter, and even then we don't know the full truth. And I think that just makes it so much more exciting. The reader is a step behind Davos, and we have to put the pieces together even as we keep up with what's happening. And then, yeah, Davos gets to drop all those, those little hints when he's looking at them, at all the worshippers looking into the fire. He's looking at Stannis, looking into the fire and wondering, what does he see? Does he see war or something closer to home? He's wondering if Stannis is going gonna, is gonna to see his betrayal. He thinks that the work they did tonight might make Axel the king's hand. And that's Davos thinking to himself, okay, this might be it. I might I might die in the process of doing the right thing, and I, I have to do that knowing I might be replaced by the worst guy on Dragonstone, by someone who can't do the job and will lead my king down a not-at-all-shining path. Like, Davos is taking that into account. And he wonders to himself about the, the worshippers at the fire. Will there be fewer on the morrow or more? And I think that's him wondering, am I actually doing the right thing? Am I striking a blow against the Red Woman and her hungry god? Or am I playing right into their hands? Am I going to make it seem like the other side is just traitors, and if you want to follow Stannis righteously, you gotta be uh, with the fire worshippers? Then there's the bit where Davos thinks about Melisandre teaching him how to see visions in the fire, or <laughs> really telling him that she can't. Uh, and some people uh, call this out of, out of character that she would be like so open about this stuff to Davos, who, you know, hates her. Uh, but I disagree. First of all, again, she doesn't actually teach him how to do it. But also Melisandre consistently respects Davos. Like, this is a thing. Even after he screws her over in this chapter, later in, in Dance with Dragons, she, uh, she keeps Devon safe by her side because she thinks that Davos has suffered enough. She sees him as a true believer like herself, even though they don't believe in Stannis the same way. In this chapter, Davos carries out his own journey of faith, one that he's been building to all through the book. After the gods plucked him from his rock in the sea, Davos chose life, only to turn around and choose death. He told Salador he knew, he just knew why he was reborn, to kill Melisandre. He strode into the castle and was immediately arrested. So much for the divine plan. Davos had to cool his heels in jail and debate Melisandre on her terms, using his rhetoric to climb to the position of Hand of the King. Now once again, Davos is confronted with an ethical dilemma, and now he shows what he's learned, completing his arc in this book. Louis the fishwife argues they should do exactly what Davos tried to do at the start of the book, just walk up to Melisandre and stab her a bunch of times. But that is not how Davos will do his duty, because he's here to save lives, not take them. His desire to kill Melisandre was basically suicidal, as Salador pointed out. If he'd succeeded, even his history with Stannis wouldn't have saved him. He wasn't thinking about the long term. Davos just wanted a glorious death to resolve the guilt and uncertainty in his heart. He wanted a shortcut to meaning. And George has instead forced him to earn his new design for living. I really love that bit about the structure of this chapter and how it's laid out. Um, and it actually made me think about this common, like, heuristic related to heist stories and heist narratives, where if you see the entire plan, something will go wrong. But yes. when they withhold the plan from you, then it's being executed as close to perfection perfection as possible and i never really tied that to this chapter but that's exactly what's happening here exactly that's a great example of it you just, you just see it unfold and you, you get filled back in as you go mm -hmm. 
So now we get to round two of Manu's Maester Pylos praise chat. <laughs> Pylos even gets a seal of approval from da- Davos, despite doubts at first, which lets us know that Pylos really is a real one. He's in on the conspiracy. He uses both his knowledge and Edric's trust in him to get him to go along with the Onion Knight. As Davos says, Pylos is also committing treason, and yet he still chooses to do the right thing. This is also Pylos's no chance and no choice moment. Davos resorts to lies to discourage Edric from seeking Shireen or King Stannis in the moment, but a lie not unkindly meant, making me think of Sansa or her father, the most honorable man in Westeros prior to Davos. <laughs> Davos shoves his defingered hand in Edric's face to give weight to this falsehood, reminding me a lot of Jamie sticking his stump in everyone's face the last time. Ooh, yeah, that's great. That's really good. I gotta think that's a that's an intentional parallel for George. Although it works a little differently just because they're they're talking to very different kinds of people. Like Jamie is talking to his family. He's trying to trying to impress upon them the seriousness of what happened to him and, and failing because they just don't take him seriously. Davos is, as he admits, lying about what happened to him in order to scare Edric into compliance. It reminds me of the song they sung about Stannis at Joffrey's wedding, framing him as a, as a dark lord motivated by cruelty and, and avarice. It's very, it's, he's a convenient storybook villain. That's what Stannis is for these people. And whether or not that's actually true, well, you know, as Davos thinks, there was no anger in Stannis when he cut off Davos' fingers. He wasn't doing it because he hated Davos, quite the opposite, nor because Stannis enjoys causing pain. No, Stannis doesn't enjoy anything. He was motivated by what Davos calls an iron sense of justice. Edric says Stannis shouldn't have done it. He should have shown mercy, like Davos is showing to Edric here. I think what George is getting at here is what Varys tells Ned about Stannis, that a truly just man isn't reassuring, he's terrifying, because none of us are good enough to live up to the standard of justice without mercy. Of course, this isn't just about an abstract standard. The personal element for Stannis is all about his brothers, Robert and Renly, a.k.a. Young Robert. Edric plays into that. He's Robert's bastard who looks more Baratheon than Stannis ever did, despite not being trueborn. I won't worship R'hllor, he tells Davos. I'm a warrior's man like my father. We know, Davos says, because he's a warrior's man himself. And that's despite the fact that, as Davos said in the last book, the faith of the Seven never really tangibly meant more to him than a scrap of bread from the Septons. Davos became a true believer after he escaped from his rock, believing the mother saved him to kill Melisandre. But in the process, he became like Melisandre, because that's how she justifies herself. Now Davos believes, not for its own sake, not as a motivation to dehumanize others to make them easier to kill. Davos believes because it gives him the courage to do this. He believes for the sake of love, which is also true of Edric. Edric believes in the warrior because that's what his father believed, and Edric loved his father. Whereas Stannis, who knew Robert better, (laughs) came to resent him. And so Stannis killed Renly, aka young Robert. He set the stag on fire. And now he might do the same to Edric, erasing the standard he could never live up to. But I love that Edric turns that faith around on Davos right before he's ushered off stage, and may the father judge you justly. (laughs) Hope not. (laughs) That ties directly into the larger themes of this storyline. Judgment and justice, that's what it's all about. Going back to the structure discussion, the fun Mm -hmm. turn in this chapter is Davos framing the boy heist as the easy part. The machinations, the timing, the need for loyalty and stealth, convincing Edric himself, coordinating all these men. That was a breeze compared to confronting Stannis and Melisandre. (laughs) Indeed, Davos is pretty sure this is the end for him. Going full John Con mode, talking about how he reached so high and fell fell going for that star. He even spares a thought for his wife and for home. His ambitions, paltry as they may be compared to other players in Westeros, haunt his steps to the Chamber of the Painted Table like the gargoyles casting their shadows all over the castle. 
And as he goes, he he uh, he reaches up for his bones. That's that's what he focuses on in this this little moment where he's alone. Throughout the book, George uses Davos's missing finger bones as a symbol of his situation. Once he had those bones around his neck to remind him of the king's justice, he said, but they were also an anchor, a noose around his neck. Once they were his luck, but now they're gone, and Davos has to make his own luck. The missing bones stand in for Davos's growth as a character. He has to reinvent himself. Once he didn't have to wonder who he was, because those bones were right there to tell him, you are the king's man, and he is your god. Now those bones are like a structuring absence. Mm. Davos can't count on that sacrifice to reassure him, because his sons, for whom he did it all, are missing along with the bones. Maester Pylos still has his chains, which he, he touches for reassurance in this chapter. Nice little touch, literally, from George there. Pylos still has that external symbol of himself around his neck. It's a great contrast with Davos. Davos doesn't have that. And he has to lie about those fingers. He has to lie about what it meant to lose them in order to get Edric moving. It's a lie told for a good purpose, which is a, an idea that comes up a lot in the story. Everything is stripped away here, and Davos has one last chance to look back on the path, shining or otherwise, that led him here. As Davos climbs the tower, the steps seem longer and steeper, a clear metaphor for his social mobility and how he's come to see it as a burden. When he was a kid in Flea Bottom, staring up at the Red Keep, Davos dreamed about getting rich. It seemed like the only way out. But as he got older, his dreams changed. Some land of his own, a house of his own, the chance for something better for his sons. It's Davos's American dream. It reminds me of what the, the older members of the Brotherhood said to Angai, the archer, when they heard about the big prize he won at the, the hands tourney in book one and how he spent it all on, on ladies and roast swan and drinking. And, and uh, one of the older guys says to him, you should have bought some turnips and some land, married one of those girls. And it's not just like, you know, being, being a grouch and being a downer, not having fun. It's about creating something to outlast you, about something sustainable, about having hope. And it makes for a direct contrast with the fate of Edric Storm and eventually Shireen, which is by burning the children, what you're doing is burning the future, burning the, the next generation. And I think George is arguing here that you can't, at the end of the day, you can't have both power and a good family life. That power demands you set your heart on fire so you can be a father or you can be a king. The children of the lowborn burn in battle, while the children of the highborn burn on the stake. Either way, the old fish eat the young fish, like Patchface said in the last Davos chapter. And you can really feel Davos's deep exhaustion, his sense of being in permanent exile like Odysseus, when he thinks that he wants only to grieve with his wife for their dead sons, raise the living ones to be good men, and speak no more of kings. Just pretend the Game of Thrones was all some crazy dream. The problem is that it wasn't actually the dream of wealth and status that drove Davos this far up the mountain. He thinks that he should have been content with the modest rewards of knighthood, but as far as we can tell, he was. Like, before the war started, it seems like Davos was fine. The reason Davos stayed in service to Stannis, the reason he sailed his sons to their death, and the reason he hasn't gone home to the sons he has left up to now, is his loyalty. His belief that he owes Stannis on a level so fundamental that it can't be ignored. Like, if Davos went home now, he wouldn't be able to enjoy it. The question of whether Stannis deserves that loyalty has come up before and will again, as will the question of whether this service is actually good for Davos. Like Salador says when they uh, part ways in a dance with dragons, he will kill you with these honors, old friend. He will kill you. But the point here is that Davos cannot bring himself to sail home and speak no more of kings any more than he can run off with Sala any of the multiple times Sala offers. Without the finger bones, he has only his choice, and he's chosen. Like he tells Stannis, four of my sons died for you and I might have died myself. You have my loyalty always. 
Before Davos confesses to Stannis and Melisandre, he confirms the latest news on the Nightfire timeline. <laughs> Joffrey is indeed dead, poison may be involved, and yes, three does equal three. Stannis launches into the story about Joffrey gutting a cat to find the kittens inside, which I think just barely edges out the Red Wedding as the most disturbing thing in this book. Uh, what did Cersei call it? Some mischief with a cat. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, we all look up at the same stars and see such different things. Uh, it's not an accident that Stannis brings this up here, because one of the big parts of his backstory is his bird, Proudwing, an injured bird he nursed back to health, but it could never keep up with Robert, just like Stannis could never keep up with Robert. The point there is that Stannis does have mercy in his heart, but he's ignoring it because he thinks it makes him weak. It's why he was always second best. You gotta set your heart on fire if you want to win. And he slips here. He calls the cat the poor thing. Why, your grace, that's, that's practically a human emotion. <laughs> Under the surface, I think he's actually talking about Edric Storm. When he describes Tommen as a gentler than Joffrey but still a monster, implying that Tommen deserves to die too, he's also talking about Edric, his actual nephew by blood. And when Davos breaks the news that your nephew Joffrey is dead, Stannis, of course, shoots back that Joffrey was not technically his nephew at all. That's the whole reason Stannis gets to call himself the king. But Davos knows that, of course. The reason he refers to Joffrey as Stannis' nephew, I think, is that he's trying to get Stannis to think about Edric, to provoke that conscience that Stannis represses, keeps hidden. In my heart of hearts, I know Davos would just be an annoying yet persistent leftist online, just like <laughs> actor Liam Cunningham who played him on HBO. He just is Davos, in the same way that, uh, that Stephen Delane needed Liam Cunningham to explain the scripts to him, <laughs> is the most Stannis thing imaginable. The most perfect casting for those two, I swear to God. <laughs> Davos does not relent in his say his name campaign when it comes to Edric, who Melisandre is still referring to as the boy. Davos gets his Ozymandias moment here, though, telling Stannis he set Edric free 35 minutes ago, and despite Melisandre's Dr. Manhattan powers, she was not able to see it, which brings Davos a wry sense of joy. He further explains to Stannis why his treason was not actually treason, which is at least good enough to get Stannis to ruminate on his own duty for a hot minute before Davos hits him with the knockout blow. A king protects his people, or he is no king at all. Reminds me of what Tywin told Joffrey about people who say they are the king, though Davos's advice is both more useful and directed at an actual adult. <laughs> Davos's defense in this case is a paper shield, and unlike Ned Stark, this shield will save his head. But George still holds back from us, not letting on what is in the scroll, though the rereader will tie it back to the end of the last Davos chapter and the Raven from Castle Black. George has done a wonderful job this entire book juggling his mysteries and reveals and twists. He lets the Edric heist play out over the course of this chapter, centers the heart of it on Davos's confession, while leaving the contents of the letter and Davos's fate to our imagination for now, and will eventually pay off when Stannis smashes Mance Raider at Castle Black. All right, you know I gotta I gotta mm -hmm. go along in this part of the chapter. This is what I love. This this is where it all comes together. There's that moment of fierce joy for Davos as Melisandre's perfect narrative falls apart. She's got her her little mantra about you know all of space time orbiting Stannis as the one true protagonist. This was all prophesied. I can give you your kingdom, but she didn't see Davos coming. Mm -hmm. He defeated her, again, not by killing her, but by saving Edric from her and putting his own life on the line to do it. This is something she never imagined, something that's not part of any self-serving prophecy. The common man self-sacrifices and defeats the gods. And then we get the culmination of the Stannis-Davos relationship, because this is the last time they meet in the story so far. 
and I love that Stannis is, as George writes, more tired than angry. <laughs> the Fury is just burned out. Like I said, he doesn't even really believe in what he's doing here, and you get the sense he's just sick of having to make decisions at all. I raised you up from dirt, Stannis says. The foundational act of Davos's arc. The moment he traded his past and his fingers for a future for his children. He was reborn and declared that King Stannis was his god. But now his children are dying, and his finger bones are gone, and he was reborn again in fire and water. Almost like he's Azor Ahai, <laughs> right under Melisandre's nose all along, the actual hero. Davos has changed, and so has the nature of his defining trait, his loyalty. He no longer serves Stannis as a god, but as a man, and all men, even kings, are flawed. Proper service doesn't mean the outright betrayal of Alistair Florent, who Davos met at the crossroads of his arc in this book, but nor does it mean the slavish obedience Davos demonstrated back in Clash of Kings when he helped Melisandre at Storm's End. So Davos declares that he has proven loyal to Stannis by defying him, because he has demonstrated worthy of the trust Stannis placed in him. He has acted like, as a true hand, a true lord, and a true knight, despite being born to none of it. When Stannis named Davos his hand, keeping that social mobility going even as Stannis' cause seemingly collapsed around them, he made Davos swear an oath. That oath included a promise to protect Stannis' people, and Davos argues that includes protecting them from Stannis. He kept his oath, that can't be treason. Stannis trapped himself by giving a good man power, a knight who remembered his vows like Dunk before him. And you could say this is just a loophole. This is just Davos finding a clever technical workaround that doesn't really matter in the face of his obvious defiance of Stannis' will, like you obviously knew he wasn't going to be okay with this and you did it. But I think George is taking it more seriously than that. This is a keystone conversation about love and duty, every bit as much as John and Aemon's back in book one. Davos is building on his earlier arguments that to save one life is to save the world entire. And Stannis and Melisandre are building on their more utilitarian argument that individual lives have to be weighed in the context of the literal apocalypse. Stannis acknowledges that power corrupts, the gold that lies cold and heavy on the head, the crown he saw burning him to ash, making me think of uh, Viserys' death back in book one. And this is his answer to that. This is his version of duty, an inversion of Davos's idea. I must sacrifice one child to the fire to save a million from the ice. And the weight of that decision, the horror of it, is precisely what demonstrates that it's a sacrifice. Melisandre backs that up. What matters is not the scale of the sacrifice, but the impact of it. The pain is the point, because the pain is what makes it real to God. The implication there is that it all comes down to blood, on a cosmic level as much as a political one. The gods let us suffer and die so they can feed. And... She's right. <laughs> Bran sees it happen when he flashes back through the life of the Winterfell heart tree, a blood sacrifice to the gods, to him, the future god king. He tastes the blood. It's a bargain like the one Craster struck with the White Walkers. Let us feed. Let us cull the herd, and you can have the rest. Not for nothing does Melisandre describe the sacrifice in terms of cows, and not for nothing does Davos immediately call this out as bullshit. <laughs> She is trying to distance Stannis from his decisions, put it in terms of metaphor so he doesn't have to think about the boy. But Melisandre then makes her strongest argument. Davos hasn't saved Edric. He hasn't saved anyone because the others will get them all. That's always the ethical tension that keeps this interesting, despite Stannis and Melisandre doing obvious Dark Lord things. <laughs> they are still the only people south of the Wall talking about the others. We have seen the end of the world coming from the beginning of the story. We got a horrifying preview of it earlier in this book when the others attacked the Night's Watch in force, and now we're watching the Watch and the Wildlings tear each other apart at the wall as the others sit back, wait, and eat popcorn. 
There is a clear need for a coalition of the living, and there needs to be a leadership structure in place to make that happen, and keep it happening. What George does here, I think, is stand that idea on its head. First, he writes it so the only king who takes the threat seriously is Stannis, who has managed to piss off pretty much everybody, and whose army has been reduced to a rounding error. Then George writes it so that Melisandre demands the most hideous price imaginable, that of a child, to get the job done. Throw Kinslaying in the mix with Edric Storm, and you're put in the position of wondering whether a world run this way is worth saving. What's missing from their moral calculus, as a lot of people have pointed out, is the idea of self-sacrifice, which is what Davos is doing, putting his own life on the line. But I think it's crucial, at the, at the climax of this showdown, Davos admits that he has no counter-argument to Melisandre. He has no solution to the others, he has no alternative mythology to fall back on, because he has learned in this book that he is not, actually, a chosen warrior of God. He's just a guy. And that's the point. He defines himself by his humility. There is much he does not understand. After all, he failed to kill Melisandre, and then he failed to change Stannis' mind about Edric Storm. Davos has been gripped by imposter syndrome all through his story so far. The certainty that Stannis just messed up by rising him high and then rising him even higher. What is he doing here? Again, why is Davos alive? Why did he outlive his sons? What can he do that no one else can? He can tell the truth. A king protects his people, or he is no king at all. Davos knows this, he says. If he knows nothing else, it's his bedrock belief, and it's as direct a political expression as we get in the series. And I think it's so important that it's a king protects his people, or he is no king at all. Not just a bad king, but no king at all. You owe nothing to a system that breaks its promises, that takes and takes and never gives. Stannis asks if he has to learn a king's duty from an onion smuggler, and the answer, as he admits to John on the wall, is yes, that's the whole point. <laughs> Just as Brienne and her probably ancestor Dunk are the most true knights despite not being knights at all, Davos understands the actual values of leadership better than anyone who was born to take power. Like Davos told Mr. Pylos, he feels totally unprepared to be Hand of the King because of his background, a smuggler from Flea Bottom. As Davos has grown as a character, George has zeroed in on this dynamic between his smuggler self and his lord self. We'll see a lot more of that in A Dance with Dragons, in which Davos' story is all about choosing between the two, or trying for a synthesis. We've seen Davos trying for a synthesis all through this chapter. He thinks to himself as that was all he was at the end of the day, Davos the smuggler. But then he tells these knights, these lords, I don't need Men of Honor now. I need smugglers. Here, finally, at the very end of his story in this book, the two come together, and Davos, the smuggler from Flea Bottom and the Hand of the King, is made whole. It is because Davos came from dirt, as Stannis so politely puts it, that he had the skills and connections to smuggle Edric Storm away to safety. And that's how he saved Stannis' life, too. In the last war, the onions he brought, which he invokes here as a debt, Stannis owes him, along with the finger bones he took. Now Davos has used that smuggler self that he was so ashamed of to fulfill the duty of the Lord self, protecting the king's people, saving the children as Ned Stark would have wanted. And speaking of him, like you said, unlike poor old dead Ned, Davos gets out of this chapter and this book with his head still on his shoulders despite Stannis drawing his sword. That's because Davos's paper shield isn't just a declaration of authority. It's a whole new lease on life for Stannis' flagging campaign, a way for him to get where he needs to be without burning children alive. We'll get more into that when Stannis shows up at the Wall, of course. But this is the last Davos chapter in A Storm of Swords. And even though it ends on a cliffhanger, we don't hear what Davos reads, we don't see what happens next until they're already there... This still completes his arc, because it's only Davos' newfound literacy that allows him to save the day. 
He has made good on his social mobility. He has demonstrated that Stannis was right to make him hand, and Davos finally has a reason to live, a reason to have escaped that rock. This is a perfect character arc. I know I've talked everyone's ear off about these chapters, but it's they really are as good as it gets. Wowie, that was incredible. <laughs> it is going to be so sad that we have to go like five years before the next Davos <laughs> chapter because you really goodbye, everybody. Uh, get in a groove with this chapter. That's just fundamentally outstanding analysis. Sir. Thank you so much, sir. So uh, moving on to uh, foreshadowing and groundwork. We get a little bit of, of particularly horrible imagery early on in this chapter when everyone's praying to the fire. We see that Shireen is described as looking black in the firelight, looking mottled like with her grayscale. This is the last time we're going to see Shireen in A Storm of Swords. She and Selyse uh, pop back up in later John chapters in A Dance with Dragons. We don't actually get much time with either of them. And I think every time we see we see Shireen, George, I just imagine George going back over the chapters before finishing. And like, I got to put in a mention of her being near the fire there. Yes. Uh, now that Catelyn Stark is dead, uh, the most ironic award <laughs> has to be involving Shireen. Because I feel like yep. every mention of her mentions fire, shadow, poor girl doesn't deserve any of this. I just... <laughs> Everything leading to the fate we know she's going to meet. Right, exactly. She, uh, she, she just can't get out of its way. Poor thing. Uh, speaking of children, uh, burned alive or almost burned alive, <laughs> this is, this is the, the last we see of Edric Storm so far in the story. There's nothing really to go on with him from the show because, of course, they merged him more or less with Gendry. So what do you think? Do you think we're ever going to see Edric Storm again, or do you think he kind of served his purpose here and George is done with him? This is a real tough one, and I do think the show kind of muddles it for me because a lot of things I could see Edric being, it's like, why not have it be Gendry, who's already come back uh, into the story by the end of A Feast for Crows? He could theoretically be an heir to Storm's End if they do something like the show did. Um, he'll obviously be involved with, you know, Arya, or we, we assume she'll be, he'll, he'll be involved with Arya, but he's already in the Brienne and Jamie milieu for now. Um, so it's like, what can Edric really be? that isn't already Gendry or something. Right. Um, and at that point, I don't know. I feel like, I, I really don't know. I, I assume Varys has some kind of answer for the Baratheon question. Like, it kind of seems like he's like lining up all these heirs. Um, perhaps Gendry was that, because we assume Varys was the one who got Gendry onto the card into the Night's Watch. Right. But like, he, he has to probably know that mission never made it to the wall, or those people are lost, dead, the queen was hunting them. He's probably aware of all that. So maybe he's looking for another one. But then again, it's, where did Edric go? Is Varys going to know to look for him there? So um, he is kind of like, I almost want him to leave. Like, it'd be great for Davos to have this like kind of unqualified win. Like, right. he got this boy out of, out of danger, and he had a great life. Because I feel like any way that Edric Storm comes back into the book will probably end poorly. <laughs> Right, um, exactly. But that's just what happens to most kids uh, who aren't uh, the, the Starks that we have point of view chapters for, basically. The odds, the odds are never in their favor. It's very <laughs> true. And yeah, I, I agree. Like I could, I could easily see a scenario in which he comes back and is in charge of Storm's End, but. Uh, Gendry is such a more prominent, such a more prominent character, and one we have a stronger emotional connection to. Uh, it is interesting that Gendry is kind of into R'hllor now, as it stands in the books. Who knows how that would actually uh, play out in the future? But Edric, I think he's he's a well written character. I like that he's just a little brat all the mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. uh, very very Baratheon, very much a Robert and Renly clone. It, it works perfectly. But I, I do I do get the feeling he kind of just exists for this plot mostly. Like he exists so there is someone Davos has to save, and that there, there is someone under threat from Stannis and that someone has to be as innocent as possible. 
And after that, yeah, I could easily see. I would, I could, I would like it actually if we never heard about Edric again, and we can imagine he had a great life. But all it is is an imagination, because that's kind of the position Davos is in. He doesn't really know what's going to happen to that kid next. He just has to put his faith in. <laughs> he has to put his faith in Salador. Well, good, good luck. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see how that goes with Davos and Salador in a dance with dragons. All right, so that is going to wrap us up for our episode on the Storm of Swords, Davos 6. Thank you so much for listening. As always, if you want to drop us a rating or review on your podcast app of choice, we really appreciate that. It helps us find new listeners. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, where our patrons get benefits, including early access to our regular episodes and exclusive episodes every month. You can follow us on uh, Twitter or Blue Sky, Instagram at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F, or shoot us an email at notacast, A-S-O-I-A-F at gmail.com. And you can find me at Poor Quentin on Twitter and Blue Sky. And you can find me at Bob on Twitter and Blue Sky. So, and next up on the Nada cast, I'm going to be jumping back into George R. R. Martin's 1982 vampire novel, A Fever Dream, that we were covering a while back on the Nada cast. Going to be jumping into that for our $5 and above patrons. That's going to be coming out on our Patreon next week. Uh, I recently wrapped up my coverage of the first Star Wars movie, Episode 4, a.k.a. A New Hope, a.k.a. Star Wars, for all our $5 and above patrons. Next up, I'm going to be jumping into Episode 5, everyone's favorite, Empire Strikes Back. That's going to be in a few weeks' time. We're also going to be dropping our, our uh, one of our regular year-end episodes where we talked about everything we watched and read and listened to and loved in 2023. That's going to be out uh, in, a, in a few weeks' time. And then next time in Aeswath, we are heading back north to the Wall for A Storm of Swords, John 8, in which John has no time to grieve for egret because all the other wildlings show up and i do mean all and that's just the first wave <laughs> these john chapters uh, just uh, you know i love I, I think the show actually did a pretty good job of compressing all of this into one episode plus towards the end of, of season four but i do love just the, the steadily escalating stakes yeah going going hand in hand with john's just like utter exhaustion <laughs> like by the time jano slint and alistair thorne show up to throw him in jail he's like well this might as well happen <laughs> whatever can i can i nap I really want to do an analysis of A Storm of Swords, and it's just about how all the characters are getting more and more tired by the end of the book, because literally that's what we talked about this chapter. That's what John is going through. Jamie, um, it's true. Jamie, you know Tyrion's getting tired in that jail cell, so... Everyone um, everyone just needs a big old nap in the Feast for Crows. <laughs> so uh, thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time in A Song of Ice and Fire for A Storm of Swords, John 8.